morning I'll be reading from the book of Hebrews, starting in chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, man, I remember it. I so, so wanted it to be true. Uh, maybe, like me, you saw an ad in the back of a magazine or a comic book, and uh, those cute little sea monkeys looked so cool, right? Real live pets that you can grow yourself. So eager to please. They can even be trained. Well, one time, years after the fact, when I was a dad, I decided, okay, we'll actually try this out with our kids. So, we ordered the sea monkeys. First of all, uh, the aquariums are made out of kind of cheap plastic and they're really dinky and not that impressive. The sea monkeys are not pink, they don't wear crowns, and they don't have little nuclear families like that. Probably because they're basically translucent brine shrimp. And not very attractive to look at or smell. They don't make good pets, and it's really hard to train a brine shrimp. So, lesson learned. That was a disappointment. That's kind of the world we live in, isn't it? We get lied to by politicians and by news organizations. We get let down by business leaders and church leaders. We can't even have much confidence in ourselves because our own attitudes and intentions change from one week to the next, one day to the next, maybe even one hour to the next. We don't keep our own word. Uh, people who work out regularly, for example, uh, I'm not counting myself in that category, will tell you that one of the worst times to start exercising is in January because everyone shows up at the gym having eaten their way through December and full of guilt and good intentions and calories that they're all trying to sweat out in January. But if you want to start an exercise routine, it's fine to start in the middle of February, because about six weeks after the new year, all the good intentions and plans and commitments and resolutions have just sort of evaporated, and there's no wait for the ellipticals. We live in a world where it seems like there is not much that we really can count on, except for difficulty and disaster and disappointment. And for some of us, for some of you, it can be the really big losses, life-shattering events that really shake the foundations of your life. 
But for a lot of us, it can just be the day-in, day-out routine of just the drain of frustrations and setbacks and things not living up to our expectation or going the way they ought to. Several years ago, I ran across a great title of a book for high school students. If God loves me, why can't I get my locker open? And it really kind of captures that frustration that life just doesn't seem to be the way we think it ought to go. Maybe we can't even count on God to work things out. Because if we could, it seems like things here would be working out a lot differently than they are. How do we live between the Advents that we heard and sung about this morning, between Jesus coming the first time as a child who would grow to be a suffering servant and a savior, and between his second coming when he returns in glory as a conquering king. We live in that reality where we have hope, but we're not seeing it being lived out in the world around us. Is there anything in that life that we live that we can count on, that gives us certainty? Well, we're continuing in our series in Hebrews, and we're in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13 this morning. That's on page 1190 in those black church Bibles in the rack in the seat underneath in front of you if you want to pull those out, or it's on page 24 in your Hebrews devotional, or it's in your Bible app, whatever you use to look up the scriptures. This passage, maybe you heard, God is wanting to work out in us, in verse 18, strong encouragement, strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that has been set before us. And this section begins with for or because in your translation, which points us back to to the end of the last section that Joey did a great job taking us through last Sunday, where the writer to the Hebrews tells us we want each of us, each of you, to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope to the end so that we would not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and perseverance or patience inherit the promises. That's the goal, that that God wants us to have certainty, a full assurance of our faith and hope so that we don't become sluggish, so that we don't become dull, so that the promises that he holds out to us, the glory that he sets before us, does not fade and become less real, less compelling than the hope or the foundation that the world holds out to us. Because, as the writer says, it's through faith and patience that we inherit the promises. God wants the hope of the glory of Christ to strengthen our joy. That's what verses 13 to 20 talk about. And this morning, that's what we want to look at, what God has done to give us certainty and confidence. And the first thing that comes up is we need certainty. God is acknowledging that that there's something in the way that we are wired that longs for a foundation, for an anchor, 
for our souls, for our lives. That, that, that's that image in verse 19. A sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Now, I'm not much of a fisherman, uh, despite my grandfather's best efforts. But my father-in-law is a pretty avid fisherman. And so when we visit Amelia's parents in Florida, he loves to take our boys out to fish. Now, uh, my father-in-law doesn't own a boat, so they will rent uh, a boat and hire a guide. And, and he has all the knowledge of where to go. He provides all the equipment. And you get out in the Gulf, and you're ready to start fishing. But there's something you have to do before you start casting. You have to drop the anchor. Because even in the gentle waters of the Gulf of Mexico, the current will gradually cause you to drift. And slowly over time, even in an afternoon, you could end up miles away from where you started and where you intended to be. And suddenly look up and realize, I don't know where I am or how I got here. You have to drop your anchor whether it's in the Gulf or the ocean or Lake Michigan, to not drift. So what is it that makes a good anchor? What is it about the anchor that gives us security? Well, first, we have to be connected to it. The anchor doesn't do any good if it's just sitting off on the side of the boat or if it runs all the way out and the, the chain ends up with it on the bottom of the ocean. In that case, the only thing it's good for is sea monkey habitat. No, it, it has to be connected to us in, in a bond that cannot be broken because second, the anchor has to go where we can't. The anchor is not just going into the water but because we're already in the water and the water is what we're fighting against to give us security. The water is what's insecure. What the anchor has to do is go through the water down to the bottom where there are rocks that are stable and immovable. And if the anchor is connected to us and it goes down where we can't to what is firm and stable, then the solidity of that foundation is transferred to us so that we become firm and stable to keep us from drifting even when storms are raging on the surface. And we need a spiritual anchor. Even more than a boat needs a physical anchor. Because nothing is secure here. Everything in this life is subject to flux and change. An ancient Greek philosopher said, you can never step into the same river twice. Because the water is constantly moving down towards the ocean. And when you step into it a second time, it's a different river because it's different water. And you are different. You are not the same person that you are when you stepped into the river the first time. You have changed. Your experiences have changed. Your perspective has changed. You can't go back. Nostalgia has this big draw towards us, doesn't it? Have you ever tried to go back to the neighborhood you grew up in or, or relive the stories of the past or sometimes even reconnect with old friends? It's not the same because you're different and the place is different. Everything around us is changing. 
Every tree is going to fall down. Every mountain is slowly being ground down into rubble. Every star is eventually going to burn out. Nothing in this physical creation is fixed and certain. And one of the hard things about getting older is seeing that in ourselves and about ourselves. Uh, Radio commentator Garrison Keillor was watching a PBS special one time, and he tells a story uh, about this documentary. It was following a group of doctors in a hospital. So they're they're following these doctors around on their charts and on their rounds and their updates, and, and there was one part where one of the doctors says, oh, the patient in room 548 died this morning. The last procedure didn't work. Then, without missing a beat, the next doctor goes on and goes, okay, well, who's got the charts on the patient in room 550? And Keeler said, it, it was really unnerving because I'd always had this hope in the back of my head that, like, if I die in a hospital someday, that my doctor's like, going to be really torn up about it. Like, he'd just dissolve into tears and have to take the rest of the day off. Like, oh, the patient in 548 died. I, I just, I can't deal with it, guys. I'll have to come back tomorrow. No, they, they move on. They have to move on. That, that's part of medicine. But, but what's poignant and painful about it is that that's just life. They move on. We move on. We have to. Because no matter what the relationship is, no matter what the thing is, no matter what the goal is, every support that we lean on will eventually crumble from underneath us. And eventually we do too. We have to have someone that will always be there for us. And yet, we don't have that power in ourselves, so where are we going to find a person like that? Somebody said, one of the reasons that we get married is because we want to know that on the day we die, someone will dissolve into tears and take at least a half day off for us. There will be somebody for us if we're married, at the end, and he or she probably will dissolve into tears. But we won't be there to see it because we're what's now missing from their lives because they had had a certain amount of hope and trust and confidence in us. But you're gone at that point. You cannot be the anchor for someone else's soul. Have you ever tried to carry an anchor, like, like a serious boat anchor? The weight is crushing. You're not made to be that. You're not made to do that. And and your doctor can't be the anchor for your soul. Your health or your finances can't be the anchor for your soul. Your career can't be the anchor for your soul. The noble cause or a great purpose can't be the anchor for your soul. Is there anyone, anything that will last, that can be there for us all the time, Back, back to the anchor metaphor, are there any rocks at the bottom that we can anchor to? Is there anything, anyone that won't change and will never let us down? The anchor has to be someone or something that's not limited by time and space, but someone that would come into our reality and yet still also be able to, to be above and beyond Writer of the Hebrews says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. 
That's an image of the Old Testament temple that's talking about Jesus, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus, when he died and rose again, went beyond death into eternity because he had come from eternity. See, unless that is your hope, you will have to trust other people as the anchor for your soul, except they will, all they can do is let you down because they're only mortal and they're not made to carry that weight and eventually even the best of them will die. And so then you say, well, fine, I won't trust anyone. I'll just rely on myself. And then you become hard and proud and alienated from other people. Do you see there's only three choices here, really? Either trust others and be disappointed and hurt, trust no one and be hard and alienated, or we have to trust Jesus. Every one of us is in one of those places or the other. And and it's not an on-off switch, right? I mean, all of us live across all three of those all the time. Even within a day, from moment to moment, we're anchoring ourselves somewhere. Where are you? What is the anchor for your soul? What is giving you stability, security, confidence? Because the second thing, the really important part here, is of course what the writer really wants us to understand, that we can have certainty in Christ. He wants us to have certainty in Christ. We have a God who is trustworthy. And and this writer to the Hebrews points that out by going all the way back to this example of Abraham, this forefather of God's people. That's where the writer of the Hebrews goes. He says, God made a promise to Abraham saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you there in verse 14. That's a reference all the way back to Genesis 22, thousands of years before. And, And this amazing story where God tells Abraham, this man that he's called to follow him, to take his son Isaac, the the son that he had promised to Abraham, that Abraham and his wife had waited 25 years for into their old age when they were beyond hope, and yet this miracle child comes from God. And God says, okay, I want you to take that son and take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him. Now that's a wild concept that that opens up all kinds of questions for us that unfortunately we don't have time to get into this morning. Abraham obeys and he takes Isaac up on the mountain and he's ready to sacrifice his son. And the angel of the Lord intervenes and says, stop, I I see Abraham now that you believe me. And and he provides the ram as the sacrifice in in the place. And writing elsewhere in the New Testament, we read, Abraham was believing that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead if need be. So because of Abraham's faithful obedience and trusting God, back in in Genesis 22, God says, I swear by myself that because you have done this and not withheld your only son, I will bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. They will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. And wow, we we read that and it's easy to think, man, Abraham was just this spiritual giant. I mean, he's like in a category by himself. He had this incredible faith. I could never be like him. But that is not the case at all. And I love how honest the Bible is. 
Take some time and go back and read the stories about the great heroes of the faith, and you will see they are people literally just like us. The same weaknesses, the same flaws, the same failures. It's not that Abraham is some spiritual giant. Abraham is able to respond this way because God made it possible for Abraham to see and trust in God's faithfulness. God appears to Abraham before this in Genesis 15, and he says, Again, Abraham, look at the heavens. Can you count the stars? That's how many your children will be. And Abraham listens to what God says, and he takes it to heart, and he says, your word is good enough for me, Lord. I'll never doubt you. No, that is not what he says. He says, how can I know? Like, uh, McFly, I'm God. I just told you I'm in charge of everything. He says, no, okay, let me confirm it to you. So God says, get some animals and cut them in half for a sacrifice. And God appears as, as kind of this flaming torch that passes between the halves of the animals. What is, what is going on here? In those days, you, you didn't sign a covenant like a contract. You literally cut a covenant. And, and what that means is every time a covenant is made in the Old Testament, there is blood involved, whether it's circumcision, whether it's an animal sacrifice, there's always the shedding of blood. And what that's communicating is, if I don't do what I have promised, let me be cut off like this thing that's sealing the covenant. Do you get what's going on there? God is saying, Abraham, if I don't follow through, may I, God, be cut off like these animals. That is a staggering thought, that God is saying, I will put my own judgment over my own head if you find me to be unfaithful. I will cease to be God if I fail to do what I have promised. And, and that takes us back to Hebrews 6, that Abraham is able to trust God. Do you, do you see that? Since Verse 13, God had no one greater by whom to swear. He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we, we who have fled to God for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast. The author says if God could lie, he would cease to be God because by his very nature, he is truth and light and life. And so if God says, Jesus has taken the penalty of your sins, that is his promise that he has guaranteed if, if he says through this writer that Jesus has entered into the most holy place in God's presence, where he is the guarantee of God's faithfulness to you, that is a promise that God is giving to you on his own word. But the second part of that is he says it with an oath for us to know that it is a done deal. You see, when, when we guarantee things by an oath, it's 
final for confirmation. It's like we say, you know, I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear on my mother's grave that I'm not the person who finished off the last of the milk and didn't replace the carton in the refrigerator. That was definitely not me. I swear on my honor. You see, what could God swear by? There's nothing greater than God. So God swears by himself, by his own existence. So by two unchangeable things, God's promise, I will do it, and God's oath, I swear on myself. May I be cursed as God if I don't fulfill this word. We may have confidence. Do you see that? God reaches as high as he possibly can to give us the greatest certainty and confidence in what he has promised to us. You have two unchangeable things that make your hope for salvation unshakable. God's word and God's oath by which he swears on himself. And I've felt this at, the, at times, and I know I've had people come and tell, to me, tell me, you know, that's great. My, my problem with trusting God is not that I don't think God is trustworthy. My problem is I know that I'm not. Because I know like in any relationship, there's, there's two people in it. And a covenant is saying, you know, if, if I do this, then you promise to do that. And God has sworn to bless me and love me and be there for me and save me. But I'm not keeping up my half of the bargain. I, I wonder, you know, have I failed him so often? Have I lied so many times? Have, have I failed to live up even to my own standards, much less God's so much? How can I know that he's still there for me? How, how can I have any confidence or certainty in his promise to me when I see me? When, when God went himself through those pieces of the animal sacrifice and said, may I be cut off as God if I don't do what I've promised. Abraham could not have foreseen what it was going to cost God to fulfill that promise. Hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaiah says this about the Messiah. He was cut off in the land of the living. And for the transgression of my people, he was cut down. See, this is why we talk about Jesus as the baby who was born for sacrifice. Because Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world to be the full and perfect offering for our failure. He took our covenant faithlessness on himself as God. God says, the punishment for covenant breaking is to be cut off. And I, God, will be cut off so that you will not be. Do you see that? The confidence, the certainty that, that God wants us to have in Christ. I will be cut off, God says, so that I may say to you, I will save you, I will love you, I will bless you, I am for you, I will fulfill all my promises to you. Do you see why Abraham could see this is the God to be trusted and that God is the only ground for certainty and how much more confidence now we have in Christ? So what do I do with that? How, how, do, how do I trust him 
How do I grow in confidence in Christ then? There's no ritual or formula or steps laid out here for Abraham or for us to trust in God. Abraham did what we need to do, which is this. He simply looked to God and believed what God said. When we take the Lord's Supper, for example, we have a physical reminder in front of us in the bread and the cup that points us to the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and the unbreakable covenant that God has made with all who trust in him. We need to remind ourselves of that. When, when we look at the cross, you know, it's not just a nice decoration on the wall or a piece of jewelry that we wear. It's supposed to remind us of the unbreakable promise that God has written in the blood of his son. That he is the anchor that has gone through the veil into the holy place in God's presence in heaven, guaranteeing that he is the forerunner who brings us with him. We have to look to God and remind ourselves of what he has fulfilled us fulfilled for us in Christ. See, if I'm going to be a, a faithful person instead of a faithless person, if I'm going to be a stable person and, and less of an up-and-down person day in and day out, if I'm never going to have certainty unless I look to God as the one who is the guarantee. Because if I'm looking at me, I, I'm always going to be discouraged. If I'm looking at my faithfulness, how much evidence of God's work there is in my life, how good a job I'm doing obeying or evangelizing or giving or serving or forgiving or blessing those who curse me, I'm never going to have any certainty because I can't live up to it, which is why we need Jesus and why we need to look to him. My faithfulness comes from Christ. My certainty is in Christ. My hope is in Christ. That means I need to look to him. I'm going to contemplate him. I'm, I'm going to spend time soaking in his word. I'm going to pray gospel-centered prayers to him. I'm going to take the music that I'm singing on Sunday and, and, and take the Spotify list on our website that Johnny's pulled together and, and, and take this worship with me into the week so that I can keep reminding myself of who Jesus is and what he has done for me. Look at God. Look at Christ. And, and then second, remember that the promises of God almost always go deeper than our expectations. One of the reasons that it's hard to see how God could be fulfilling his promises in my life is because we tend to be at a very, frankly, shallow level in what we want God to do and what we're looking for. And his promises and his commitment to us is actually much deeper than what we ask of him. I mean, for example, in the Psalms, the psalmist says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Delight yourself in him and he will give you the desires of your heart. And, and what's our first typical response to that? Man, that sounds awesome, right? The desires of my heart, a, a, a romance, a love, someone that will never leave me, a great career, wealth, success. Do you see that all of those things are ultimately just means to an end? Because when we look for those things, what we're really looking for is significance and being known and loved 
We're looking for stability. We're looking for impact on the world. We're looking for glory. And, and, and we're looking for them, unfortunately, in really shallow things that we can grab and hold and, and have in front of us. The great career, the person who loves you forever, are, are only the things that we think will satisfy our hearts. Because God has made us for himself. God says, I will give you the desires of your heart. But here's the thing. You may not be a very good judge of what the desires of your heart actually are. Are you willing to trust me as the one who made your heart that I know what your heart needs? Because God says, Abraham waited patiently and obtained the promise in verse 15. Did you hear that? How did Abraham obtain the promise? I mean, when he died, he had one son and two grandkids and, and a bunch of other kids that he produced, you know, by sort of not trusting God. That does not sound like the stars of the heaven and the sand on the seashores. Because you may not see the promise fulfilled in your lifetime. In one sense, Abraham saw it fulfilled because Jesus says, Abraham looked forward to my day and rejoiced to see it. Because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. And, and now we are the answer to that prayer and that promise. But Abraham died without seeing descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. If you're going to have certainty, you have to trust that God will fulfill his promises and he knows the desires of your heart even better than you do. And then if we're really going to have certainty, we need to be serious about asking God to help us walk in obedience to him. Which means we're going to have to obey him even when it's going to cost us. Because here's the thing. Disobedience always has a cost to it because it's a trust issue. When I'm disobeying God, I'm saying, I don't trust you to give, you, give me what I need. And I think that by taking control of things, I'm going to get something greater than what you would give me by obeying you. What I can provide for myself is greater than what you can give me, God. So I'm just going to go over here for a while and, and do what I want to do. And God says, I has not seen nor ear heard what God has purposed for those who love him, who trust him. Can you trust that what God would actually give you, reward you, fulfill you with in obeying him is greater than what you could get for yourself. Because that's where we actually grow in faith and hope and certainty in God's promises. Everyone and everything in this world will let you down in one way or another. I mean, we say it, right, as a proverb. There's only two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. But if you think about it, those two things are only very highly likely. Because one day, one day Jesus is going to return. And there will be no more death and there will be no more taxes. Hallelujah and amen. The one who will destroy death and taxes and sin and evil forever is the one we can rely on. He's the one who is certain, the one thing that does not change. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because Jesus does not change, his oath and his promise 
are certain and they are our hope. God says, either I am your anchor, I am the foundation, and everything is secure no matter how crazy the circumstances of your life, or I'm not your anchor, and everything is actually insecure no matter how solid and stable everything seems to be in your life. I am your certainty, God says, and Jesus is the guarantee. Trust and hope in me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how well you know our hearts and what we need. And you are the confidence and the hope and the anchor for our souls and our lives and our hope and our present and our future. Jesus, would that be true for us? Help us to trust and believe that you are our firm foundation. Forgive us for the ways that we put our hope and our security in other things and help us to know the certainty that only you give, the confidence as we hold fast to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.